Genre. Hello and welcome to Lord of the Rings Minute, the daily podcast where we analyze the movie The Return of the King one long fall at a time. Uh, is it a long fall? Uh, from fro- from the perspective at the top with Sam looking down at Frodo, that's a pretty long way to fall. Oh, oh, I meant like, uh, you said long fall and I'm thinking Gollum, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, so What's today we're talking name? about Minute. Uh, my name is Norman Mitchell. <laughs> I got even further ahead. Then, uh, yeah, okay. I'm Cassandra Fredrickson. And today we're talking about Minute 214 uh, on this auspicious Thursday. Uh, and Is it? I I guess. It's been a week. Yeah. It'll it'll have been a week by the time this comes out. It has been a week. Uh, and uh, Minute 214 starts with Frodo taking another step, very angry and lunging at Gollum, and ends with the ring, its inscription starting to glow. Floating on top of lava. Yeah, it's not um, floating. It's like... well, it's made its own little island. Yeah, how did that happen? Uh, so John Howe presents us with should a, we start in order? An interesting idea should about we, that. Should we go in order? Or yeah, like... we should kind of go in order. Okay. So <laughs> we're bad at this. We, yeah, we are. It's fine. Well, it's easy to be like. So the minute starts like this and ends like this, and like, oh, that end thing has this thing in my right, brain. Right, right. So let's talk about it. But the the scene begins with Frodo being real angry, lunging at Gollum. Yeah, I like um, I like feral Frodo's um his whole, whole vibe. Thing. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's quite a vibe. It's um, I like it, but it's also like really scary, and I don't like it. Yeah, it's jarring. It's intended to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they apparently talked about how to do this scene, and they did it three ways, and this is the middle ground way. Okay. So the three ways that they did this scene are the way it is in the book. It's just Gollum dancing around like an idiot. Random happenstance kills him. He falls off. Ring is destroyed. Yeah. Frodo takes no action. They did another take on the opposite extreme where the take is Frodo explicitly pushing him off. Whoa. What? And then they did this version, which is the two of them struggling over the ring which you can say is ultimately the ring leading to its own doom. Um, because it's the ring influencing the two of them, causing them to fight over it that ultimately leads to its destruction. Yeah. And it puts action in Frodo's hands without making him explicitly a murderer of Gollum. <laughs> and uh, Peter Jackson talks about feeling like it's important that the protagonist has an active hand in the... In the destruction of the ring at this moment, rather than happenstance, yeah. that is a little counter to some of the theming of Lord of the of, of Lord of the Rings as a book. Yeah, but overall, I think as a movie, your protagonist does need to have an active hand in things at least a little bit. Yes, and this doesn't go like all the way with Frodo just murdering Gollum. Right. Although, if he hadn't gotten up to go fight with Gollum, Gollum wouldn't have fallen off. I don't know. He's like pretty close to the edge. Right. Or, you know, it would have just turned out out of the book. He's just doing his, his idiot dance, his happy idiot dance and just falling off the edge. Why are we calling him an idiot? You said yesterday he was cute. He is cute. But he is. It is just his just 
big happy dance. All right, next time you have a big happy dance, I'm going to call it your idiot dance. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> no, it's I'm, I'm not. Only ca- I'm only saying it's an idiot dance because of where it's happening. Oh. Well, I mean, like, that just speaks to, like, how hyper-focused Gollum is on yeah. the ring. Like, he doesn't care what's going on around him. He has the ring. It doesn't matter that he's, like, on a, the edge of a cliff. On a precipice. Yeah. Very, very literally and figuratively. Yeah. So, like, I think it makes sense because, like, he is focused so much of his being and his will and, and his time and, like, for the past right. like, 60 years, all he's wanted to do is get it back. So, like, now that he has it, it makes sense to me that he is, like, right. freaking out like this. That doesn't make it any less foolish. That's just why it makes sense. But I'm saying, like, I don't know that he has control over it because, yeah. like, he is so um, enraptured by the, the ring. Like, yeah. the ring itself is, like, like, he has it back. Like, it, yeah. it's, like, ecstatic, you know? Oh, yeah. No, it's ecstasy. That's, yeah. that's 100% the look on Gollum's face pretty much through the whole minute. Because they have this little tussle. We get an insert shot of the the troll stomping on Aragorn and him using his hunting knife, which I still don't understand how he still has, right. stabbing it in the foot. I don't understand a lot of things about this movie, and we've yeah. gone over it minute by minute, so I don't know that we'll ever understand. <laughs> but it's very clearly the the hunting knife from... Yes, it, it is the elvish hunting from, knife from uh, Lothlorien. Yeah. He stabs the the troll in the foot with it. We come back here. You know what? I'm off they gonna go. Be, I'm gonna be real here for a second. Mm. Um, Lay it on me. I don't care about Aragorn right now. No, this is way more important. What's going on in Mount Doom? Especially like normally when we're watching this movie, like all I'm focused on is this, and like the the Aragorn thing is like happening, but I'm like. I always forget yeah. that, that he they gotta, does They gotta that. tell you that everyone's in trouble at this point. No, no, I know. But, like, it makes sense. But I do not care. Right, I just, I just want to like, see this. Like, minute by minute, through. I especially don't care. I'm like, oh. Because it breaks up the climax. The, the troll's gonna do a big step. Like, yeah. Because it breaks up the climax, which just makes it feel worse than this this very tiny way we're yeah, doing it's, this. Yeah, it's not even that it's worse. It's just like, I don't care about this. Can we just skip? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just keep moving. Yeah. But yeah, then we Which we... is like antithetical to everything I stand for because yeah. usually I'm like, yeah, Aragorn, Aragorn and Legolas. But like the, I yeah, don't the, care. We get that insert shot of Gandalf being in trouble. Mm-hmm. Though not as much trouble as Aragorn. Aragorn's really good at the Is he in worst. trouble? I mean he's surrounded. He looks They're tired all surrounded. and haggard. We've known they've been in trouble since the first time yeah. this happened. We watched the army surround them. They just Why gotta are remind us of the little insert shot. Why are we surprised by this? They just gotta keep reminding us. But then we, we come back to we come back to Frodo and Gollum wrestling on here at the edge of this this precipice over the lava, and then the two of them fall. And the way that they fall they fall uh it's like they, they take just like the tiniest little step away and just ah Yeah. And the way that they fall I don't understand how Frodo is even able to grab onto the edge, but that's fine. He just needs to in order to survive. Um because his hit top is his his upper part falls away. Well, he also is closer to the cliff face than yeah. Gollum is. I just if if you break down the the angle of his fall, I think it's just kind of I don't know how that made sense, but it's fine. Whatever he yeah, has to survive, yeah, yeah. I'll overlook it. It's movie logic. It's fine in this case. The way Gollum falls, one they mo capped the fall. Whoa, really? Yeah. 
So Andy Andy Circus is just like falling off a thing onto a pad. Okay, so math time. Math time. Um That's a very long fall. Yes. Um now like coming back to it. So like I don't gravity doesn't work the same in Middle Earth because Middle Earth is like slightly flat at this point still, right? Yeah. Um so but like how long how far is this fall? If he's falling for... Uh, yeah, how long does he fall for? Uh, Four seconds? Five seconds. Five seconds. Almost six. Yeah. So almost six seconds. That's long enough to reach terminal velocity, I think. So he falls pretty far. So he, like, 1,500-ish like... feet? Wow. It's something like that, I think. Really? Or 500 feet? It's a long ways. Hmm. I could look it up online. Length of a football field, at least. Like, how... How far does an object travel when it's falling? Right. How 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 far does a person fall in six seconds? It's just an easy way to search for that, probably. Yeah. So he... Okay, so when he hits the lava, um, first of all, why is he not, like... Because, like, when people fall that far into water... Oh, yeah, the shock is just too much. Yeah, that... Like, that's why... If you're falling... If you fall far enough that you hit water at terminal velocity, it's like hitting a brick wall. Yeah. You die instantly. You can, so like, maybe not. So, like, what what's going on with Gollum here? We can talk about the John Howe thing. Does it... Um... Okay, so the, the John Howe thing is only about the ring, particularly on the lava. But this thing with Gollum. Yeah. So the thing about Andy Serkis's performance as Gollum and what they chose to do here is that Gollum is so absorbed in the ring, he doesn't even really feel the pain of the lava. His last moments aren't, I'm in pain, it's, I can't let the ring be sunken. Yeah. Which I don't want to watch Gollum be in pain. <laughs> but it's just it's just a very it's a very explicit it's a very explicit thing about the ring has replaced his his, his self mm-hmm. because he doesn't even feel the pain. All Gollum has is the ring, and all he is at the ring is the ring at that moment. Yeah. So he doesn't he doesn't register the fall completely. He doesn't register the the pain of the lava. And then. Um, and then we, we like see Frodo and he's way up above and they're looking down. Sam is just so relieved that Frodo is clinging to the edge. Yes. Instead of down there with Gollum. And then this little this little island of lava cools to support the ring. Yeah, what's up with that? So John Howe in the, the designer commentary uh states that he he sees this as the idea that some power of the ring or some aspect of how it is made magical and what it represents is in fact um, like supernaturally uh, supernaturally cool in a way that it maintains itself. So it needs to be as hot as lava to even or, or as hot as open flame to even begin to warm the ring. Its temperature is always maintained at a level way below way below uh its melting point to a point where only only being directly exposed to something like this can even begin to actually raise its temperature okay so does that mean so that means like, so like it, so its temperature ice? is a yeah kind of but it but its freezing point is like close to room temperature and it's really hard to move it from there that is weird um it's hard to like put the energy into it to move it from that temperature, which is weird, but is like also not unprecedented. It just means that its melting point, like in a real world physics perspective, it means that its melting point would be like 
super, super, super high. Like well, yeah. way beyond what we might even like think of. Because how hot is magma in a volcano? Right, exactly. <laughs> but like magical physics time, it just has something about it that causes its temperature to be like really tightly maintained. Yeah. So in order to break that and begin to affect it, it has to be like way beyond. It has fire resistance. I don't know that it's... I don't know that it's... um temperature though like i know that that's what makes things melt but like the whole point is like you it can't just be any volcano right like it has to I mean, be the we one we don't know but like why would they go and if it could be any volcano there just isn't another one what there isn't another volcano in middle it's just not another volcano this is the one i don't this is the closest one i don't buy that there's no lava described in the Lonely Mountain in the Hobbit book. I feel like the Lonely Mountain is an extinct volcano. Right, so there's no lava. But you cannot tell me that there's not another active volcano in the range of mountains. Um, the what's the one that the, the ones that they go over? I think they're the Ash Mountains. No, no, no. Oh, in the Misty Mountains. Yeah, the Misty Mountains. Thank uh, you. Oh, I don't know. Uh, apparently not. This is the one. That's why it's so like feared and revered and special. It's the one active volcano. I mean, that's fantasy. Yeah, but, like, you cannot... It's, it's not real-world geography at all. But you get, like, um, like isolated mountains like that all the time. Well, I mean, it's just not real-world geography in the fact that it's just... With the number of mountain ranges and how long they are, you'd think there'd be another volcano somewhere. Yeah. There just isn't. Where, where are the tectonic plates of Middle Earth? That's what I want to know. Well, there's one that's because like, okay. If you look, it's like at, Mordor and Harad. If, if you look at the um, because Mordor is like surrounded on all three sides by mountains, right? Yeah, it's three sides. Yeah, all three sides, <laughs> three sides instead of four. Um, it has so one like, open side. So, like, to me, there should be at like some kind of fault, um, in in that area yeah. because that's what makes the mountains go high. Yes. So there should be some like seismic activity in and around Mordor. Right. Well, how many active volcanoes are in the Rocky Mountain range? Well, the Rocky Mountain I none? But like they're older. They're much older. Well, I mean it the mountains in Middle Earth are like hundreds of thousands of years old too. Yeah, I guess. They're like ages of time older. But okay, so there should be like at least one more, you'd think. Maybe. But there just isn't, apparently. There should be at least one more in, like, the mountain range around Mordor, you would think. Guess not. Also, if it's flat, like, if it's flat versus round and there's less, like, gravitational pressure and stuff, the tectonic plates probably don't move as much. I don't... What? Because there's Because the Earth's, the Earth's spinning and yeah, other forces yeah, 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 is what yeah. helps cause the tectonic plates to move. It's like the, the pressure from I'm inside the sphere. I'm trying to apply real-world physics to a movie that's about a magic ring. I know I'm going to On a fail. flat Earth. Like, that's an important part but of like, this equation. But, like, I don't know that, um... Is it... Is it... Because we keep joking about how it's flat, but, like... It was curved later to fully shut off Valinor and, like, change the world. Like, yeah, that's part of the isn't thing. Isn't Valinor, also, like, already far away like isn't it already floating in space yeah it's been separated but i don't like think Asgard the earth is or whatever but the middle earth doesn't become earth for still like another age at least so is it like slightly curved i don't know it's not a sphere yet right so is it just like a parabola <laughs> it's like they cut valinor off and like moved it yeah like, like uh 
like if you have two pieces of paper and you just move one off. Yeah. And it's like Valinor is this piece of paper. Middle Earth is this piece of paper. Yeah. So like, is the is they the haven't Middle started Earth, turning it yet? Yeah. Is the Middle Earth piece of paper completely flat, or ha- is it like a little curved? That's what I'm yeah. asking at this point in time. I don't know. Not for sure. I don't know for sure. Okay. But it's not because, a sphere at the very least. Because like, what what age is it with the trees, um, and the lamps? The lamps first, then trees. Yeah, lamps, then trees. So, like, if if the lamps we're getting into we're getting into Silmarillion time. Oh no! Um, so, like, the lamps were the the sun and the moon, right? Like, basically, it, yeah. It was basically like this is a thing that we need to illuminate the darkness, and because it's flat, it, they're just it, two really tall ones. Yeah, and they illuminate everything. Right. So, like, after the spider spider takes the lamps. No. No. Morgoth, Morgoth Morgoth knocked the lamps down. Morgoth turned the lights off. <laughs> yes. Don't turn the lights off. Morgoth, turn off the lights. <laughs> Eru's like, why are all the lights in the house off? <laughs> what is this? I pay the power bill. Who turned the thermostat off? <laughs> yeah, right. This is dad senses tingling. <laughs> um, so Morgoth knocked the lamps down. Ungolian is just Morgoth being like, can I keep this feral cat? <laughs> <laughs> Look what I found. It's just like, click, 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 click. And everyone's like, oh, uh. no. <laughs> Please, God, no. Can't you see it has mange? Put, put, that, it, put it down. Put that thing back where it came from. Or so help me. <laughs> or so help me. So help me, me. <laughs> so like, okay. So then the lamps... Uh, Morgoth's like, I'm evil, Mwahaha, I'm right. gonna take the light. And then the trees are also... Then the trees are, the trees were then, like, spoiled by Ungoliant. Okay. And Morgoth. But the trees also served a similar purpose. Where but only in Valinor. Only in Valinor, okay. They only shed light in Valinor. The, when the trees existed, there was no light in Arda. It's the Age of Darkness for them. Whoa, okay. So it's just all the terrible beasties of Morgoth taking over oh. the land. And then eventually, the 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 Valar go across Came to Arda, and they were just like they go oh. across to Arda. They kick Morgoth's butt. They imprison right, him. Right, right, they right. They like kind of reestablish order in Middle Earth a little bit on Arda. Dude, they shouldn't have left. And then Morgoth is imprisoned. And then when right. Morgoth is freed, him and Ungoliant like knock the trees down, and then he's imprisoned again. Okay. I think. I we didn't get that far. And stuff, but I think that's I think that's basically like what goes on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, like, okay, there's multiple imprisonments of Morgoth. So explicitly, like during the lamps, flat Why? as a pancake. Yes, absolutely. In this darkness, does it like curve a little? Like, boop. I don't think I, it, it, I don't think any curvature starts until after Numenor tries to get to Valinor, and then they separate themselves from Arda. So that's like. What? That's like two thousand years ago, three thousand, or like three and a half thousand years ago. Um, the first age, no, the third age, ends in like year three thousand. Right. And it's eight. like it's like three and a half thousand years ago or something like that. I don't remember exactly. So it's but like during, Elendil, the, during the second age, like straight up near the end of the second age, because Elendil was born in Numenor. He came from Numenor as an adult. Um, Isildur's dad. Yeah. I was like, who are we talking about? He came from Numenor (laughs) as an adult. Okay, okay. And then he's like, but he lives a long time. Right. So it's it's still within the last, like, 3,500 years that Valinor Valinor was was separated. Bye. Yeah. 
Screw you guys. It's like near the tail end of the second age. Okay. Which still leaves like so. Let's say a generous, hundreds of thousands of years of history before that of this earth being totally flat. Let's just say a generous four thousand years. Yeah, a gener- very generous. <laughs> it's probably like thirty two hundred or something. It's just it's not that long ago. Wow. Really. Okay. Like Galadriel is, is like hundreds 10, is hundreds years old. of thousands of years old. Oh wait, really? Yeah. I thought she was like ten thousand. She's like over a hundred thousand easily. Oh, because she... she's because she's she's lived through all the ages of Middle Earth, and there's three, and then she also like existed back in like other with like past the trees ages. and stuff, right? Yeah. Okay. Whoa. <laughs> Crazy. Like, she is older than Feanor. She was his aunt. No, Feanor's her, or her Feanor's uncle. her uncle. Yeah. Feanor's her uncle. Yeah. 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 Creepy uncle but, Feanor. Like, we're talking hundreds of thousands of years ago, or over a hundred thousand years ago at the very least. Yeah. Elrond, I think, was alive at that time, too. No, I think Elrond is younger. Or, I don't, uh, maybe Elrond is the one that's like 50 or 50,000 or I something. Don't, I thought someone was like Arwen is like, two. Ar- Arwen is two. Two and a half. It's like two and a half, yeah. Yeah. We looked it up. I remember that. And uh, Arendelle is at least of age with Galadriel, and he was Elrond's dad. Right. So that's why I'm like, I don't know that Elrond is like hundreds of thousands of years old. Very old. Elrond is, the, like, the second or third oldest elf in Middle-earth. Why Earth. are we talking about this? Because we just went off I on forgot. stuff about the Flat Earth. Oh, and Flat Earth, Flat relation Earth. Relation to, like, yes. how yes. it would affect Volcanoes. plate tectonics. Yes, yes. <laughs> Why no. are we here again? Right, exactly. <laughs> so the thing so the thing about this ring thing. The ring thing. For me. The, the inscription on the ring glowing the in this way and, like, showing us this. Yeah. There is, except with the caveat that the ring is a character itself in the story. Which is like a pretty metatextual way to look at this. Mm-hmm. There's no character in the scene for us to see this th- through the eyes of. No. Oh, are we back to fourth wall? This is this is the thing. Like, there's no character in this scene for us to see this through the eyes of. This is something that exists purely for the audience, not for any character in the scene. Okay. Right. But the camera isn't a character; it's a wall. It's sort of that. This exists purely for the audience. And is therefore, like, it's not anything that makes sense in any context other than the audience existing. But, like, As far as a visual. Which, like, we were, we talked about this off mic after the, the thing yeah, before. Yeah, that yeah. there's, like, there's discourse in what constitutes a fourth wall break and whether anything that exists purely for the... Sake of the audience. Purely for the sake of the audience. That, things that only make sense in the context that an audience is viewing it versus does a character have to directly address... Yeah. The thing I'm in is the like second a, camp. I, I'm kind of in, I'm in the first because Obviously. I think it, it makes more it makes more sense over the course of the evolution of cinema versus theater. I some things are necessary to tell your story in this medium, yeah. And that I don't think nece- like all of those things I don't think necessarily make it a fourth wall break. I mean. I, I disagree, but I don't think calling it a fourth wall break is in any way taking away from its integrity or calling it bad. I'm not calling it bad. I'm just saying I don't agree. Yeah. Right. Like, I'm I'm just... It's just something that we disagree on. Like, every on. single visual information that is independent of our characters does not a fourth wall break make. Right. Like, I don't... I don't think... I think there are merits to both opinions because at some point it's just like, well, well then what's the usefulness of the term? The usefulness of the term? 
like if you're in the in the first camp as though in the in the idea that anything that the context of only makes sense if it's if a character is not explicitly looking at it like anything that only exists for the benefit of an audience only makes sense in the context that an audience is viewing it constitutes like a fourth wall break at a certain point like you question the usefulness of that definition because of how wide it falls yeah and like that that's certainly an argument against it i just i don't necessarily think that it's a bad thing to call those things fourth wall breaks that's like why i i kind of fall in that camp because I, I don't think it it hurts anything to consider them such but like to me it's such a very specific thing right like this this discourse is about like the evolution of that meaning over the course of yeah. the last 100 years mostly because of cinema versus theater right right because in theater like the 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 framing is so particular that the things that we traditionally call fourth wall breaks are incredibly explicit because they have to be by virtue of how the medium works so okay let's take um um, like a Greek chorus, or or like um, every time Iago talks in in um, right. Oh my God, Othello. Um, he is like every time someone does like an evil monologue. Yeah. So like I was the the thing I read about this, um, and if I can find the article again, I might link it in the Facebook group. Uh, specifically talks about Shakespeare and Greek choruses. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Um, because it's just like. While many of these things that Greek choruses or Shakespeare's narrators or characters do aren't explicitly fourth wall breaks, it's interesting to see that even across the evolution of theater, uh, writers are constantly playing with like the tenuous fabric of the fourth wall. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like... and Because I know that the whole point of a Greek chorus is to exist both simultaneously inside and outside the play. Yeah. Because it's like they're they're like the, the gateway into into the story. Yeah. Uh, the TV Tropes page about fourth wall breaks also like talks about a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And and then like with, with Shakespeare, um, it gets a little more um, bendy because it's just like, okay, who is this guy talking to? Just himself. <laughs> but, but that doesn't make any sense. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Like the my favorite character side evil monologue is God loves bast is God loves a bastard. Yeah, yeah. Um, from King Lear, right? From King Lear, because yeah. it's just because of the the performance in that Ian McKellen King Lear with it is so good. <laughs> I mean, it's a good. I cannot remember the name of that actor to save my life. It's a good monologue. I um. But the way it's done in that. In that particular performance of King Lear is just so good. But, but yeah, the, the the thing that I always think about is is Iago because like, um, have you seen the one uh the one where it's like um Kenneth Branagh is Iago and then um Lawrence Fishburne is Othello? No, but that sounds pretty good. Yeah, it was pretty great. So like, because it's it's a play, but it's also like we're making a, this into a movie like that is very much explicitly like he is right, addressing the camera. Yeah, because it shifts from kind of the the in and out of universe feeling that it would be on stage to yeah, yeah, you yeah. have to address the camera to do this in a movie. Yeah. But like like straight up like I am staring the lens into its soul. Right. Um and it's just evil kind of front having a good time. Right. So, like, See, but like that only becomes like the fourth wall break that it is because of the because, evolution of yeah, theater into yeah, cinema. But like that's what I'm when so, I like, think I think that's really interesting. Stuff like that. Yeah. That's cool. Like, I I think it's really interesting to really, like, pick apart stuff like that. Uh, I also, I tend to think of things in, like, 
very meta terms anytime I start thinking about structure and not thinking about um try I, I tend to not think about things in like traditionalist terms when I start thinking of meta terms. I think about peeling back like all these layers and like really digging into like at its base, what does this like what is this doing? What is it for? Like what does this accomplish? Does it make sense in any way other than in a meta context? I guess. Like, that's just how I think I, I about think stuff. I think you lost me. Like, that's just how I think about stuff. Okay. Like, it's... From the from the in-narrative perspective, like, things that feel the most in-world are things that still make sense in the context of there not being an audience at all. Does that make sense? Sorry, can you say that again? So, it... it the things that make the most sense, like, in a narrative way, yeah. in a story, especially in a movie... And things that feel like they make sense in a narrative way are things that would still make sense under the assumption that there is no audience. When things only make sense under the assumption that there is an audience, then it feels like a fourth wall break to me. Like if there's no reason to show it in narrative in from a character's perspective. Yeah, but then that's that choice is made under the assumption that there is an audience and therefore tacitly acknowledges that there is a fourth wall. That's my point. But I don't Because it has to. Otherwise, there's no reason for it to exist. But see, that I don't I don't agree. That's a, like to me that's just a logical argument. It's just in order for it to exist, it has to no, tacitly I acknowledge I the fourth wall. I understand, but like therefore, also Therefore it, it it pushes because on of it. because of the 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 nature of the medium though like st- stuff like that is necessary like stuff like the ring in the the volcano kitty pool like um that is necessary right. to me to to better tell your story right but because it's necessary but it's, to but, do but i think it's be- like because it is part of the medium like that to me does not mean that it's a fourth wall break. It just means that I'm watching a movie. Like, but that's the that's the same argument for not calling the Greek chorus a fourth wall break until very recently in modern discourse. That's the same argument. It's just the evolution of the media over time. So like That's what I'm saying. Like over time, like that that definition has already shifted. Yeah. Like this is just like continuing the same logic I'm that calls Iago and the Greek chorus fourth wall breaks. Yeah, this is just continuing that same logic to apply to non-character things. This is just applying that same logic to the media as a whole instead of just to a character in the media. But if we consider the ring to be a right, character, that, that's how I. That's why I started this argument. That's why I started this as. Unless you you accept the like narrative conceit that the ring is a character here, right? Then it's us viewing this character, but you can definitely watch this movie and not take that from it. It's simply an interpretation of this. But since we have been watching the, these movies minute by minute and considering the ring a character in its own right, with that under that protective right. umbrella, then this makes sense. Then this isn't a fourth wall break, right? Under under that interpretation, that makes sense. I just think it's interesting to point out that, like, under the assumption the ring isn't a character into of itself. But we've we've. But we we talk about that a lot because it's a really interesting way to read things. But 
I think that they work so hard at establishing the fact that the ring is a character and has agency in its own right. Because otherwise, if it was just like a magical artifact, I don't think it would be floating on this island of like crust. Well, you can interpret this as either the enchantment that maintains the ring is just that hard to break, and this is simply a cursed object. I mean, or both you can, can take, be true. Or you can take it as an act of itself. Like both, both make sense in the context of how this story has been told. That it's either just a cursed object that makes people lust for it. Yeah. Or it has an active will that causes people to lust for it. I mean, both things both can be make true. sense. Well, they're. It's if it has an active sense, it it's can not have simply an active a cursed ability item. and a passive ability. <laughs> but you can you can consider those two things independently true from every piece of the narrative presented to you. I don't know that they're mutually exclusive. But you can you can draw those can you can draw those two conclusions mutually from each other just from what's presented to you. That's what I'm saying. Like the way it's presented, you can draw those conclusions completely separately. Yeah. So it makes both of those interpretations valid and potentially mutually exclusive depending on how you're looking at it. They don't have to be, but you can interpret them to be based on exactly what the narrative shows us. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. But I'm saying that like, generally they don't have to be. I Right. Okay. I agree they don't have to be. Okay. I'm just... I'm just arguing <laughs> I'm just arguing that you can interpret them to be separate yeah. based on what we're shown. But I disagree. Right. Well, and, and I mean, yeah, and that dis- disagreement is subjective because ultimately it's an interpretation of the media that we're shown. But like the, we also have like someone who was like directly involved in the design of this movie being like oh, yeah that, it's actively like <laughs> that gets that gets into death of the author conversations which no, are messy. I know, but like also um i don't because we talk a lot about uh, we've talked a lot um about like peter jackson's influence on these movies yeah. so like i don't i don't subscribe to death of the author because like there is a a, a part of the artist that will always be in a work yeah I, Which is why I don't watch Woody Allen movies anymore. Fair enough. Mic drop. <laughs> totally fair. It's, it's totally fair. There is always a part of the artist in the work. Mm. Whether it's tiny or or enormous. Yeah. I feel like there's all like you cannot successfully disentangle someone from their work. No, the best you can do is reconcile it if it's something you reconcile it with yourself as if it's something you enjoy. That's the best you can do. Right. It's never going to be totally separate. Yeah. The best you can do is like reconcile it to you. I'm not going to bring up the very topical thing no, that's we're, going it's on fine. right now. It's fine. <laughs> we don't. We don't have to go there. No. Like uh, death of the author conversation. <laughs> death of the author is also like an aspect of literary, like a literary analysis and literary theory. Yes. No. I that's know. That's like really modern. Yeah, um, and it, it's like it's it's a product of like postmodernism in art. I um, you know, it has its merits in academia. Um, but like I don't necessarily yeah. subscribe to it. Yeah, I mean, like the idea of death of the author is um, it's useful in an incredibly like academic dissection of a work, right? But it, it's it's not necessary in everyday parlance or everyday right. experiences to just take it at face value. Right. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's yeah. useful in academia, but not in real life. Yeah. 
Because it's a tool. It's like any other tool for for any other kind of research. Right. Yeah. The but yeah, this it's this, just another way to examine the work. Yeah. But you can't just you can't just but, pick one. Like right, it, it doesn't make all the other ways to examine a work invalid. Right. Right. You have to like because historical context matters. Like the I honest honestly, in my opinion, when it comes to death of the author style conversations, historical context is the thing that matters most. Mm. In, to me, anyway, as a person. Mm. Like, it's the thing that, that makes the most sense well, to me to look sense, at the lens Well, that makes sense because you are interested in history. Right, exactly. And, like, so the historical context of what led to a work's creation, to me, is almost more important to how to, to place it uh, literarily and how to interpret it. In, in my view, it's more important overall than the author themselves because the author is also a product of, of that context. Yeah. yeah. Though not necessarily. Um, and so they're either they're either a like a contemporary example of their time or part of the or counterculture. A reaction to it, right? Yeah. And like yeah. both of those things are important, and the historical context informs that. Yeah. But yeah, no, like you have to look at all the the ways to examine a work. It's just yeah. like one specific hyper focus, and I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah, people know. people are obsessed with like focusing on one thing, but it's just that's only useful in the circumstance where that thing is the tool you're supposed to use. Right. Yeah. But like, there's there's way broader ways to look at things. Um, but yeah, but that's that's why I think the idea of like the what is can what is considered the fourth wall and what's considered pushing against it is really interesting mm. because it's discourse born from the evolution of the media. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting to look at it and like bring it up because there are lots of things in movies that if you if you pick apart in that way, it's just like there's no reason to do this other than in the context that an audience exists. Yeah. And it's just like on a meta on a meta level. Does that does that mean that this is done as an acknowledgement of the fourth wall? And I think that's a question worth asking. Mm. But yeah, there, there's not anything else in this minute to talk about. Yeah, no. Um, and I've said my I've said my piece on this fourth wall thing. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering when you were gonna bring bring that up again. So and I was like, oh, not this stuff again. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I thought it was a good discussion. Yeah, me too. I I I, I just think stuff like that's really it, it. Stuff like that's really fascinating to me as a person because I'm I'm interested in. In the why of things and not just the how. Yeah. I mean, I am too to a certain extent, but like this is like it was like like I was talking about a couple of days ago with the suspension of disbelief. Like that's just part of enjoying the, a movie. Right. Um. So like if your audience is coming to it with that and then you as the, the movie maker is coming to it where it's just like, OK, so uh, these things are necessary for me to tell my story in a way that is um, uh, the audience can understand. Yeah. That's just part of the dialogue of, of, of a movie. Yeah. I mean, some some genres are, are way more... And not like the dialogue in the movie. I mean, like the dialogue between the audience and the, the movie maker. Yeah, the between the audience yes, and yeah, the, the director yeah. and the producer and stuff. Yeah. the Some genres are also like way more um, way more sensitive to it. Horror and, and horror and thrillers like really have to be by design. Yes. Because there's information the audience absolutely needs for the thing to work. Uh-huh. But there's also um, suspension of disbelief is also about whether or not like plots in and of themselves make sense, whether or not the physics is right. like accepting the physics, which I think is like slightly different, but like um, but like parallel to the the existence of the fourth wall. I think they're they're separate but like parallel concerns as far as the media. Mm. Because to me, since suspension of disbelief has more to do with um, with the invert suspension of disbelief is about in in universe in universe constructs, and the fourth wall is about out of universe constructs. 
Well, the fourth wall is like both in and out. It's like the Greek chorus thing all over. Well, again. it's the well the the fourth wall is generally considered the barrier between. No, I know, I know what it is. So anything anything that touches the fourth wall or acknowledges the fourth wall is inherently outside the bounds of its narrative construct. But it's That's also the, inside. Right. But because it is, because it is, but, but like breaking the fourth wall is like, you have broken a barrier. Yes. You've broken the barrier. That doesn't mean that you have like, you've broken the barrier. That doesn't mean you've crossed over the barrier. No, well, part of, part of you has, but the, but right, the part of you, it's... but the barrier, the barrier is a meta construct from inside the narrative, from inside the narrative. The fourth wall is something that only exists because there is an outer, there is an outside world. It's a construct of the outside world constraining the media, not the media constraining the outside world. Okay, yeah. That that's what I mean. That's why it's an it's an it's an out of narrative construct because if it's an out of narrative construct because it only exists because there is an out of narrative. I'm confused. Like the the fourth wall is a construct that exists from outside the narrative because it can only be built if outside the narrative is acknowledged. It's a construct outside the narrative. Suspension of disbelief is about accepting the constructs inside the narrative. Okay. I feel I've lost you. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, I'll roll with it. But but it's it's okay. <laughs> um if if that I'm I'm totally willing to like continue that discussion with somebody too like if if I've also confused the listener. That's it's totally fine. Norman, explain yourself. Yeah, no, that's totally fine. <laughs> Um, Fight me. <laughs> but I'm totally willing to engage on this because I just find it really interesting. The But yeah, I don't I don't have anything else about this minute. So Okay. Yeah, Legit. I guess it's, Legit. it's time to wrap up this, this Thursday. Legit. Um, so we're from the website DuelingGenre.com. If you want to continue to discuss this uh, relatively controversial point about the fourth wall. Is it relatively controversial? I, I don't know. It, the, Are we stirring up controversy? Are we stirring up controversy? Like the... And discourse I found seems to be relatively like tacit. It's just like this is a this is a thing and like a, a split in some like tiny aspects of the the cinema and theatrical community. Yeah. So it's just like really interesting to me that it's just it's not super big. It's just this thing that I happened across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um I love that we've stumbled into this argument like ass over tea kettle. Yeah, no, just totally. <laughs> um like TV tropes in their like thing, yeah. Just like has this little disclaimer about like different definitions of the fourth wall. It's just like this is the one we're using because it's useful for our purposes and it's like the traditional one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so at the very least, whoever edits TV tropes is aware of this. I feel like you'd have to be. Yeah, because it's your job. But yeah. yeah, head to the Facebook listener group, the Fellowship of the Mic, and we can keep talking about anything we're about also, this. We're also on Twitter at LOTR Minute. Yeah. If you prefer to use that platform. Right. They're they're gar they are both garbage fires, but for different reasons. For entirely different reasons. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh we'll be back tomorrow to to finish out the week. Uh until then, everybody have a great day. Bye. Bye.